I like the part about the encampments, don't you? The angel encampments. I like that a lot. So thank you, choir and Jeff. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and go to Daniel chapter 7. If you're joining us online, I hope you will have your copy of God's Word there along with your coffee. And uh, join us on Daniel chapter 7. We were driving in this morning and I told Sherry, I live in Florida for a reason. I don't like the cold weather. Uh, I checked the over by the river, I live over in Fleming Island, it never gets as cold over there as they say it's going to get. And the car said it was 32 this morning when I went out and started it up. And it was 28 by the time I got over here at Oakleaf. So you who live over here on the west side, you there, but still 32 is uh, much too cold for me. You know it's cold when the cat sits at the door and you open the door and the cat sticks his head out and turns around and comes back inside. He's not going out there, so... Uh, uh, I'm thankful it'll warm up uh, this week. Daniel chapter 7, as we move into this part of the book of Daniel in our study, there's a major transition from chapter 6 to chapter 7. Uh, we actually move into a very uh, heavy section of prophecy in the last part of Daniel. The first six chapters were largely historical. They're about Daniel's life, his captivity, and serving under two kingdoms, Gentile kingdoms, the Babylonians and the Persians. And we share in the last six chapters of the book visions that God gave him, revelation from God. Now we know from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the writer to Hebrews says that God spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets in various ways, in various manners, and has in these last days spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. And what that means in, in summary is that in the Old Testament, God was revealed. New Testament, the fulfillment, the totality of God's revelation to us has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Daniel was part of those prophets in the Old Testament who received visions and revelation from God about things that would happen in the future. Now you are blessed and I am blessed to live in what's called the church age, the age of grace. We, from our historical perspective, can look back and see that many of these prophecies have been fulfilled. In other words, we can see the validity uh, and the accuracy of God's prophetic word because history has proven it to be true. There are still some things yet to be fulfilled, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but a large majority of it has already been fulfilled, and we can see that, which should encourage you, and that God is sovereign over the affairs of man, and that he's controlling all of human history. And the more I watch the news, the more that comforts me, that God is in control of what's going on. Now, the importance of these six chapters, the last part of Daniel, cannot really be overstated with regard to prophecy. Some scholars have called Daniel the, the skeleton upon which he hangs, or the or the framework upon which prophecy hangs. And certainly, if you're going to do a, a serious study of the book of Revelation, before one does that, you need to understand Daniel. You need to understand what Daniel has to say. And, and uh, so as we move into this passage, understand this. Daniel, in these six chapters, takes us from the 6th century B.C. through the kingdom of Christ. He takes us from the 6th century B.C. through what's called the time of the Gentiles, and I'll explain that more in just a moment, through the tribulation and into the kingdom of Christ, all in six chapters. So 
that means you need to buckle up and, uh, and, and be ready to, to listen and understand. And as always, let me say this for you online and here as well. Um, if you should ever have questions about the things that we study, you go, boy, I, I, I understood part of that, but I didn't get all of it. There's an email. I have an email at the church, and if you email me, I will answer you. Maybe not the same day, but if you ask me a question, I'll be glad to, to clarify or answer for you, okay? So look at verse 1. As Daniel sets the time for us, he says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Now, it's important that Daniel dates this prophecy for us. It's important because there are critics who attack the Bible. And one of the, one of the primary books that critics attack is the book of Daniel. Because what they try to say is they try to say Daniel didn't prophesy, he wrote history. They try to say that Daniel lived some 200 or 300 years later than the Bible says he lived. But I want you to understand something. Daniel himself right here says it was the first year of Belshazzar, which is about 553 B.C. Okay? Now we know Belshazzar because we just studied him a couple of weeks ago, right? He's the young king who was having the party and God wrote on the wall. Remember all that? And it was the last king as Babylon fell and the Medo-Persians took over. In the first year of his reign or co-regency with his dad, remember? His dad was still alive and he was co-regent. Daniel received this vision. Now, understand, that means that Daniel is prophesying. That's essential to understand. He's not writing his in great detail. Now listen, the fact that they come true the fact that we can look back at history and see that everything Daniel said happened just as God revealed to him tells you what? That there's a God in heaven who's driving the bus. There's a God in heaven who's controlling human history, who's moving nations, who's moving leaders, who's moving life. And it should encourage you, should comfort you to know that the God who saved you is in control of all of history. And guess what? If God's 100% accurate, to this point right now, what does it tell you about the rest of it? It's 100% accurate. It's going to happen. So Daniel dates it for us and points out that it's the first year of, of Belshazzar. Now, notice also that he wrote down the dreams. Well, that's good. I'm sure Daniel was a smart guy, high IQ, could have remembered a lot of stuff, but he wrote it down. God wanted him to write it down. Why? So that we could read it today. Okay? January 30th. Uh, 2022. He wanted us to be able to read it and understand it, and so Daniel wrote it down. Now, what did he see? Interesting vision. Look at verses 2 and 3. Now, Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, before we explain what he's saying here, let me remind you of some fundamental hermeneutical practices in the Bible of understanding prophecy and understanding what the Bible means. And you know this because we've learned it. What is the best interpreter of the Bible? The Bible. Thank you very much. Okay. You all get an A today. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. So if we read something and we go, that's strange. You know, we got this ocean and we got the sea and the wind blowing on it. What, you know, which ocean, what wind, right? Those would be all the questions you would be asking yourself. Well, the first person, the first thing you might think is, well, Daniel's writing 
from the Middle East, so maybe he's talking about the Mediterranean Sea and there's storms. In a literal sense, that would be the first thing you would think. But we know there's more to this than a windstorm on the ocean, right? I mean, Daniel's receiving a vision here. So what we have to do is try to figure out what is he, what's he talking about? Well, let's identify first the great sea. What sea is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about the Mediterranean Sea, though it's a great sea, and I've sailed on it many, many times. Now, what he's saying here, well, let me give you two verses that explain it for us. Number one, in Psalm 65, 7, listen to this. You who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people. So now we see in just one verse in the Old Testament, there are many more, where the sea is connected to people, okay? And noise and tumult. We really get it in Revelation 17, 15. Listen to this. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. That Daniel is seeing in this vision is people, it's Gentile nations. It's the tumult of the people. Now, if, if the sea is the masses of Gentile people, masses of Gentile nations, which is exactly what it is, then what is it that's moving upon them, the wind? Well, the, the, the Hebrew word there, ruah, is often interpreted throughout the Bible to mean spirit or angelic spirits. So Daniel is very clearly saying this. In his vision, the first thing he saw is the masses of humanity. Now remember, from a Jewish perspective, what does he see? Everybody else but them. So he sees from his perspective as a prophet, from his perspective as a Jew, he sees the restlessness of the masses of people in the world. What an apt description of the world. The restlessness of the Gentile nations. It's been that way for a long time. What do we see on the news every day? The restlessness of a world outside of God, the restlessness of a world overcome with sin and wickedness and hatred, armies assembling on borders and nations saber-rattling. Daniel said, I saw in my vision the tumult of the seas. Now, what is the wind that's blowing on them? Ruah, it is God moving upon them. It could be angelic hosts that God uses to manage the nations. The Holy Spirit himself, God himself. We know from reading the Bible again, that God has angels who superintend over nations and God has them assigned in the world to carry out his purposes just as Satan has demons over nations to, to influence for wickedness. So Daniel sees in the first part of his vision the tumult of the nations, the, the unsettledness of the Gentile world and how God's moving upon them to bring about his purpose. Now, specifically... As God moves upon these nations, Daniel sees four beasts come out of the, among the nations, four uh, animals that are not normal as we will see in just a moment. These four beasts represent, listen, Gentile empires or nations that will rise from among the masses of Gentiles. Now, one observation here. What you will find out as we read about these nations and the description of them here is they parallel what we read in chapter 2. Does anybody remember what we read in chapter 2? You said, Pastor, that was a long time ago. I know. Okay, let me help you. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And where did the dream come from? It came from God. Same God who's given Daniel this vision. So watch this. Not an accident that the same God who gave Nebuchadnezzar a vision has given Daniel a vision, a dream of the same stuff, except from two perspectives. When 
when Nebuchadnezzar saw these four nations that we're going to talk about, he saw them as in a big statue, remember? Head of gold was the Babylonian Empire, and the arms of silver, and the chest was the Medo-Persian Empire, and the abdomen and thighs of bronze was the Greeks, and legs of iron were the Romans, and the feet and the clay were the reconstituted uh, Roman Empire. and the tribute. Remember, we talked about all that. Now watch this. From man's perspective, the kingdoms of the world are glorious, aren't they? I mean, when you see them, they're magnificent. There are these precious metals, and they're beautiful. And even Nebuchadnezzar, in the next chapter, he built the, built the statue and covered the whole thing in gold because he didn't like God's idea that my kingdom's not going to last. So he builds the whole thing in gold. Why? To glorify himself. From man's perspective, we see ourselves kingdoms to Daniel in this vision were wild beasts, ravenous and destructive and wicked and selfish. You see, we need to be reminded this morning that we see ourselves in a good light, don't we? Now, let's just be honest. I like me. Do you like you? Okay. And, 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 and if, if I'm going to talk about me, I'm probably going to do it in the best light possible. Now, sometimes that's hard work, right? I mean, you've got to work around all the stuff that's wrong, but you come up with the best way to present yourself. Uh, God sees us like we are, don't he? God sees us through all the, through all the mirrors and the smoke and, the, and all the, you know, we put on the makeup and we comb our hair and we, and we make ourselves presentable, but God doesn't look on the outside, does he? He looks on the inside. And what does God see when he looks on the inside of man? rottenness and death and sin and wickedness, right? Because that's who we are outside of Christ. And so when God looks at the world, he doesn't see us as this magnificent image of gold and silver and bronze and, and you know, and this great majesty and power of the nations. No, God sees the tumult of humanity languishing in sin and killing and murdering and wicked at heart and a man who, men and women who need to be saved and changed and redeemed. That's how God sees us. And I'll tell you something. I'm thankful that God sees us that way because he knows what we need. And when we see ourselves like God sees us, it humbles us. You say, why is it important for me to read the Bible? Because as a Christian, when you read the Bible and you see the greatness of God, we see our lack of greatness. When we see the greatness of God, we see our need for dependence on him. And the world and all of its pride and arrogance doesn't see any of that. We have such a terrible habit of trying to make ourselves look good. And God said, there ain't nothing about you that looks good. You see, when Jesus gets on us, then we... And I see you in my son, and that's why you look good. So the world as God sees it, a ravenous beast. And notice the description. Look at verse 4, verses 4 to 7 as he describes them. Daniel said, I saw these four beasts come up. And he said, the first one was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, in verse 5, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Verse 6, After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard. 
which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. We'll get to that last one. Think about these four beasts. Now, you already know if these animals correspond to the vision in chapter 2 of the image, we already know which kingdoms these are, but let's talk about them real quick. The first one, the lion with the wings. If you were to go in on the Internet this afternoon and look up the Babylonian Empire and look at archaeological finds, you'll find on the walls in Babylon a lion with wings on it. It was, one of their, it was one of their symbols among many. Now, we know that the kingdoms are often connected to the king, to a king, a prominent king. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest and most prominent king of the Babylonian Empire. So in Daniel's description of this first kingdom, we know it's Babylon, and Daniel lived in that kingdom. We also know that something strange happened to Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? Remember? when we read about Nebuchadnezzar's humbling experience back in chapter 4, he was proud and God warned him and said, I'm going to humble you if you don't humble yourself. And one day he's standing on the wall of the kingdom and said, isn't this great Babylon that I built for my glory? And God struck him down. And for seven years he had some kind of mental illness. And when he came back, he had his right mind back and God gave him his kingdom back. And then he testified and witnessed of how great the God of heaven was. And I believe the man got saved. So right here, Daniel said, in this vision, he sees this lion with the wings, and the wings get plucked. And then he stands on two feet, and God gives him the heart of a man. What is that? I think that's the, trans, the, the, the salvation and the transition of, of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom. And historically, historically, and it's just history, you can read it anywhere, and it may or may not be right, but there are indications that Nebuchadnezzar was a different man after he came back to the throne, that he wasn't as ruthless as he was, that he was more humanitarian, if you will, more caring. Well, what's that indicative of? A new nature? That God changed him on the inside. So what Daniel sees in his vision is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and happened to the kingdom. And so we know that the Babylonian kingdom passed from human history, didn't it? And God said it would. And the next animal is a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. Well, the bear is the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the reason it's raised up on one side is when the, when the kingdom of, of Persia began, it was confederate with the, with the Medos, the Medians, but Persia very rapidly became the dominant force, thus raised up on one side and, and actually took over the entire kingdom. And the three ribs uh, that you find in the, in the mouth of the bear really, I believe, represent three kingdoms that they dominated as they came to power, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Lydian kingdom. And so this picture that, that, uh, that Daniel sees in this vision is of the rise of the Persian Empire and of their dominance. And the bear was uh, commanded to, to go out and expand and to conquer and to consume much flesh, and the Persians were a massive empire. They did that. They conquered everybody, uh, everybody around. So everything that, that Daniel saw vision through the Babylonians and the Persians. And then there's a third animal. And he said, this animal looked like a leopard. And this leopard was different as well. It had four wings instead of two. And it had four heads. Well, that's a strange looking leopard. 
four wings and four heads. You say, well, what does the leopard represent? Well, what was the kingdom that came after the Persians? Macedonians, the Greeks. Alexander the Great. Watch this. Alexander the Great. This is, I've read a lot of, he's one of my favorite guys to read about, not because he was a cool guy, but because God did some amazing things with him. Alexander, if, listen, if before that thing, conquer the Persian Empire, you just said, man, you need to sit down and rethink that. Because the, the Persian Empire, I don't have time to tell you this morning, they were massive. And when they went to war, they took armies that dwarfed everybody. They were massive. They were, they were, there was no way, from a human perspective, Alexander's conquering the Persian Empire. Now, he, he took about, about 10,000 cavalry, of which that was his favorite. He led the front of the cavalry on his horse, and probably another 20,000, 30,000 phalanx army, and he went over and defeated an army four times the size of his and conquered an entire empire. Thus, speed. Alexander was known historically for being able to move his armies great distances at rapid speeds. A leopard is fast, and because it has four wings, it's even faster. And man, he flew across the Persian Empire and conquered them. You say, well, what's the four heads about? Well, the Bible said that in another prophetic area that the leader of that kingdom would be cut off and that he would not leave his kingdom to his posterity to his children, but would be left to others. Daniel had four generals, Antipater, uh, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And when Alexander died unexpectedly, guess where his kingdom went? Those four split up his kingdom. So we have this leopard that spread across the earth and took over the Persian Empire. And when he died, his, his kingdom was split between those uh, four generals. Then there's a fourth beast that Daniel sees here. So we have the Babylonian Empire, we have the Persians, we have the Greeks. What's the fourth one? The Romans, the iron. And it's described here as a beast with iron teeth and it crushed and it conquered. The Roman Empire was, was incredible. The Roman, the Roman army uh, was unstoppable particularly in the early days. The Roman Empire ruled the known modern world of its day for six or 700 years, and some say up to a thousand. But think about it, five or 600 years of absolute dominance with an army that was unstoppable, the army of the Roman Empire. God describes them as a terrible beast, as one that crushed with iron teeth. Now listen. Daniel received this vision in the 6th century B.C. The Roman Empire was still in power when Jesus was born. So four or five hundred years later, exactly what exactly as he said it would happen, just as God said it would happen, what validity of the authenticity of God's word, what encouragement of God's promises and how valid they are. You say, well, how does that apply to us in the church age? Well, it absolutely applies because what has God promised you and me? That in Jesus Christ, we have a home in heaven. And if God can control the affairs of the world, he don't have no problem building me a shack in heaven. Probably not a shack, probably a big old mansion. 
if God can move the affairs of the world and so accurately describe what's going to happen, all of his promises to me and you for all of eternity of, of worshiping and serving with Jesus Christ and his kingdom forever and forever and forever is going to happen. And if you're watching online or you're here this morning, you've never been saved, it ought to make you afraid because God's warnings about judgment and the fierceness and the, and the, and the terror and torment of an eternal lake of fire is very real. And God will do just what he said he'll do. So this prophecy is for our benefit and for us to know. Now let me talk about a term very quickly that you see in the Bible that's directly connected here, and it's called the time of the Gentiles. Who, how many of you have heard of that, time of the Gentiles? Let me tell you what that is. Up until, up until 586 B.C., when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and Nebuchadnezzar just took the city and destroyed the temple, God was working... Um, working out his plan with the Jews and the kingdom and the kings of Judah and Israel, and they failed, and God sent them into captivity. God punished them. They, Nebuchadnezzar, God used him as an instrument to take over the city. From 586 B.C., the, the time of the Gentiles began. In other words, Israel has been under the dominance of a Gentile world ever since then. Now, somebody will say today, well, you know what? They're back in their land in 1948. They went back in there. Well, let me tell you something. If you, don't, if you don't know this, they exist because God allowed them to go back into the land. But the reason they're still there is because God has used the United States of America to protect them. It's our military might that protects them from being driven into the sea. Now, I can tell you from doing military exercise with them, they're small, but you really wouldn't want to tangle with them because they don't, they don't mess around. I mean, they shoot first and ask questions later. That's, that's kind of how they do I mean, they really are good. They got the best pilots in the world. They just don't have a lot. I mean, they have a little tiny country, and everybody around them hates them, okay? But the point is this. They've been under Gentile threat and dominion since 586 B.C. And that's going to continue until the end of the tribulation when Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, comes back at the Battle of Armageddon and destroys the Gentile world powers. So from 586 B.C. until the end of the tribulation is the time of the Gentiles. We live in the time of the Gentiles. Now, the grace of God happens to be in the time of the Gentiles that there's the church age, where God is in the time of the Gentiles calling out a people for himself of every tongue and tribe and nation in the world. And you are blessed to be part of that as a child of God. But God has this plan, do you see it? That this time of the Gentiles is going to go to the end. Now watch, when Jesus comes back, destroys Antichrist and the last form of the world power of Gentiles, which will be the re rebirthed Roman Empire in the tribulation, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and the time of the Gentiles is going to be over. Then it'll be Jesus on the throne of Israel, center of the, of the universe again, if you will, of the world, and Jesus will be on the throne. So all of this prophecy, what I'm saying to you, all of this prophecy is showing us God's plan and how it's going to play out to the end. Now, the last thing I want to show you this morning is that God takes us in this prophecy all the way from from 6th century B.C. to the end, to the end of the tribulation. And you really begin to see that in verses 7 and 8. Now, we read 7, but look at verse 7 in conjunction with verse 8. Here's the last Gentile kingdom that will be destroyed. After this, Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, verse 7. 
That's the Roman Empire. That's the kingdom that came after, uh, after the Greeks. But at the end there, where he starts talking about ten horns and going into verse 8, watch this. Daniel said, and I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn. The roots, and there in this horn were eyes like eyes of a man and a mouth speaking uh, pompous or blasphemous words. Again, we know what these are because look down to verse 24 of Daniel 7 real quick. Just go right down your page. Look at this. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. So here's what. When he moves to the end of verse 7 and sees these horns, these horns represent the, are, are, are active in the last form of the Roman Empire. Now, here's what I mean by that. Listen very carefully. The Roman Empire, it kind of fell apart. It split up. It fell apart. In the tribulation, when, when, when Jesus raptures the church and we leave here, I pray for it to happen today, okay? And we leave here. The tribulation is going to begin, the seven years. When the tribulation begins, the nations that make up the old Roman Empire are going to confederate, and the, and the old Roman Empire is going to reconstitute. Now watch this. It's going to be made up of ten leaders, ten kings, ten presidents, whatever they're called today. Okay, There'll be whatever you want to call them. And he's going to replace three of those kings. And so he'll be dominant. The little horn will take the power. Thus, he will begin to his rise of power as Antichrist over the old Roman Empire, which he will use to try to dominate the world. Is everybody following that? Very clear. Clear? Okay. Well, let me show you this real quick. We got time. Well, there's so much. Listen. We get a picture of this in the intertestamental period. You say, what's the intertestamental period? From, from the end of the Old Testament to, to Matthew is about 400 years. You see, I didn't know that. Well, now you do, okay. About 400 years from when the Old Testament had ended to Matthew, when we get to the New Testament. Trust me when I tell you a lot of stuff happened in those 400 years, okay? A lot of stuff. God was in control. Remember the generals from Alexander the Great? Two of them, Seleucus and, and Ptolemy. What do you know in history? We got the Seleucid Empire in, in, in the Middle East, in Syria, and we had the Ptolemies where? In Egypt. Cleopatra, remember all that stuff, right? Made movies. She didn't make movies, but movies about her. So we got Cleopatra in, in, in the Ptolemies in Egypt, and we had the Seleucids in Syria. Well, over that 400 years, those two kingdoms fought all the time. And when they fought, guess who they had to march by going back and forth? Jerusalem, okay? So Jerusalem is, is caught in the middle, and these two nations are fighting one another. And for a long time, the Ptolemaic kingdom was dominant, and then the Seleucid kingdom became dominant. One of the kings of the Seleucid Empire is a type of this little horn. He's a, he's a picture of it, of the Antichrist. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means he thinks he was God. So this guy considered himself deity, and he decided because he was of Greek descent, right? He's of the generals of Alexander the Great. He decided 
that everybody should be Greek. Everybody should be Macedonian. And he went to Jerusalem and said, you're no longer allowed to be Jewish. Okay, I guess if you think you're God, you can try to do that. So he said to the Jews, you can't practice Judaism anymore if, on pain of death. If you circumcise your children, do any of the stuff God said, we're going to kill you. And he went into the temple in Jerusalem and offered a pig, a, an unclean animal, on the altar and put a statue of Zeus in there. Blasphemy on top of blasphemy, you know, before God. You ever heard of the Maccabees? Okay. The brothers, the dad. That's where these guys came from. The Maccabees said, enough of that nonsense, and raised an army and, and ran them out of town, basically. There's a lot more to it. You ought to read the history. I'm telling you, you ought to read the history. Here's my point. Antiochus Epiphanes is a type, is a picture of what the Antichrist is going to be. He goes into the temple, blasphemes God, puts a pig on the altar, puts a statue of Zeus in there. Antichrist is going to take it a step further. He's going to go in there and say, I'm God. No statue of Zeus. Worship me. And he's going to, and he's going to set himself up as God. The same kind of persecution that Antiochus Epiphanes put on the Jews in the intertestinal period, killing multitudes, the Antichrist will take to another level. He'll try to exterminate the Jews. the end of the tribulation. All of that is in here. Don't see it? Okay. It's in there. Uh, because what Daniel sees is a picture and type of all that, okay? Now let me finish up with this. Let me ask you a question. You already know that. It's a rhetorical answer. Do you think God's going to let this nonsense stand? Nope. Nope. He, God is long-suffering and patient. And he, lets, he lets wickedness run its course and then the hammer comes, right? Let's just say that. Then righteous God. Well, guess what? Look at verses 9 to 14. The hammer falls, and it's going to fall, and Daniel sees it. Daniel said, I watched till thrones were put in place. These aren't human thrones. Watch this. And the Ancient of Days was seated. That's God Almighty himself, okay? In other words, God's going to show up at the end of all this mess, set up his throne, and go, okay, now let's settle the account. Let's get it all straightened out. Look at the description in verse 9. <clears throat> his garment was white as snow. And Daniel's seeing this in the vision. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. Just read Ezekiel and you, you can get all that. A fiery stream. Look at verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. From in front of his throne, the fire is flying. Okay? What does fire always speak to? Judgment. Wrath. He's not coming. He, man, when he shows up for this deal, it's judgment day. Notice what else it says. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Well, there's a lot I could say here, but I'm just thinking, the people who are watching this, the, the people that will be alive when that happens, they're all thinking, we are in serious trouble right now. Because the, the God is on his throne, the fire is flying, everybody sit down, and the books are open. Look at verse 11. I watched, Daniel said, then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. That's the Antichrist. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flames. So that, that dude's gone. Okay? Slain and in the fire. As for the beast, they had prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man. Now that's Jesus. 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then he, to him was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom and all that all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Well, I like the last part better than I like the first part. Here's what Daniel saw. He saw when these kingdoms have run their course, when the time of the Gentiles has run its course, God's going to set up his throne. He's going to judge the nations. He's going to judge them. And in the end, he's going to give the kingdom to his son, Jesus Christ, who's going to rule forever and ever and ever. And he's going to have dominion. And all the, all the wickedness and arrogance of man will be removed. Let me say one last thing. The books were opened. You see that? Plural, books are open. Here's the truth, and we're going to close. God records everything. Matter of fact, the Bible says every idle word is recorded, that we're accountable for it. Well, that scares you, don't it? Have you ever spoken some idle words you wish you hadn't spoken? We all have. Every word is recorded. Every sin is recorded. Every wickedness is recorded. And the books will be opened. Now, why will the books be opened? Because God is absolutely just. And when judgment falls, it will fall for the guilt of what was done. In other words, God just doesn't indiscriminately hand out judgment. Mm -mm. No, those who were wicked will answer for their wickedness. And they will answer for the degree of their wickedness, whether great or small. God's just. Now, here's the good news. Are you ready? Because right about now, I'm thinking, Lord, I am in trouble. Because I just know there's a bunch of stuff written down about me. My wife can confirm it. It's written down, okay? But here's the good news. You ready? When you get saved, when you come to Jesus, God throws that thing away. It's pretty good. When you get saved, he wipes it out. No more sin. When you get saved, I think God's got one of those big stamps like the accountant's got up there. It says paid in full, and he stamps the thing, and there's no more judgment. Why? Because Jesus took it. All the punishment that I should have got, he took it. All the punishment you should have got, he took it. So we can stand in front of God one day, accepted in the, in the sun. Man, that's good. That's good. And the world's missing it, aren't they? The world's missing it. They're just missing it. Don't miss it today. This is some cool stuff. Prophecy and history, we could spend, we, it's good. But it's only good if you understand that God's sovereign. And he's going to set all the records straight one day. And the only way not to be on the receiving end of judgment is to be in Jesus Christ, to be saved. So this morning, if you've never been saved, that's what you need. You say, what do I have to do to be saved? Well, nothing but believe. Just come to Jesus. Confess your sin. God, I'm guilty. You got the books to prove it. You got all the records. I'm guilty. But I ask you to forgive me, and I put my faith in Jesus, and he'll forgive you. He'll wipe it out. He'll take it all away. He'll never look at it again. If you're in Jesus Christ, you will never have to stand in front of God the Father and answer for your sin because Jesus already answered for it. He already paid for it. 
All the Father's going to do is welcome you into the family right into heaven. If you are saved, would you get saved this morning? Would you come to Jesus? Don't take a chance on meeting God as your judge. Meet him as your Savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for revealing these things in your word, for teaching us. God, bless it to our hearts. I pray this morning, if there's someone here who is without Christ, if they've never been saved, Lord, save them today. God, may they understand how important it is to come and confess their sin, put their faith in your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross. Bless the invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. If I can pray with your help, you come on the first verse.